Our scripture this morning is Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would put the shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If, if you're a, a little newer this morning, uh, this summer we're going through a series in the Psalms. Obviously today is Psalm uh, 14, and uh, we have the great pleasure and privilege of hearing from Craig Furter this morning. Craig is a member here at Grace Christian Fellowship. He has served years and years, would that be a kind way to say it, as a pastor um, and also currently serves at Great Northern University as a professor of New Testament. So would you welcome Craig, please? Thanks, brother. Yeah. Well, good morning. Just a quick, quick question. How many of you were at the 20-year celebration last year? Oh, almost all of us. That was amazing. I thought my wife and I were, were pretty new to the church, so um, that was really fun for us to look, just listen to the stories and see people. But I thought of many of you who have been here for a long time. I thought, oh, man. This had to be very meaningful to hear the stories, to, to see people that are still back at the central campus or who have gone to the, to the valley campus and see them again. Um, and just think of God's faithfulness in all of it and how he's reaching uh, communities as well as just growing us as disciples. So really special time. That was great. And it was good to see everybody there. Okay, I think when any time, any time when... Uh, when Pastor Dave is speaking, anytime where we're listening to truth, I think that truth is going to kind of go through our mind in, a, in one of three ways. As we hear that truth, it's either, it, it may be something that's brand new to us. And so it's sort of a paradigm shift. We hear it and we go, oh, I've never heard that before. And there's a paradigm shift. I remember the first time that I, I heard uh, the sovereignty of God and the free will of men kind of taught side by side and the tension that's between them, I remember feeling like, oh man, my world just got shook up. And there was a paradigm shift and I had kind of an aha moment. So, so when we hear truth, it's possible that our response is gonna be like an aha moment. Other times we hear truth and we realize, I've known this truth, I've heard this truth, but I've not really been living by this truth. I've let it go dormant in my life. And as I'm listening to it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I need to bring that back up to the front. I was thinking as, as, uh, as Bill Farley was speaking uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
and he mentioned that facts need to overrule our feelings and we need to live through the grid of the sovereignty of God and not through our emotions. And I thought, yep, that's something I always need to bring from the back burner to the front burner. Yep, think through those things. Oh yeah, that's true. And then sometimes we hear truth and that truth hits us like this. Yep, that's me. That's where I'm at right now. I believe that, I embrace that, I'm living by that. This is so encouraging to me to hear it affirmed again. So Psalm 14, let's see how this truth hits each one of us this morning. As you have had conversations, I'm sure, about Christianity with friends, with neighbors, with family members, who have maybe not chosen yet to follow Christ, you have surely heard thoughts and opinions that sounded something like this. If there is a God, we really can't know him, her, it. And God as such doesn't seem to impact my day-to-day -day life much. And if you continued in that conversation and, and had good dialogue back and forth, it probably went something like this. There's just too much evil, too much disorder, too much injustice for there to be a God who is closely watching or interacting with us as earth dwellers. People can commit horrendous crimes and inflict enormous pain on, on people, and that no God seems to step in and stop that. And just as troubling, some people have had to suffer agony from natural causes like illnesses or handicaps or hurricanes, or earthquakes, or famines, or freak accidents. And it is definitely not obvious that there is a caring God who helps to give relief to people who find themselves in those situations. So not knowing if there is a God, or at least a God who is engaged with what's happening here on earth, God doesn't really factor into my life too much. How many people have had a conversation with somebody that was something like that. It, it, not exactly, but it smelled like that a little bit. Yeah, that's not an unusual conversation. I haven't had a billion of those conversations, but I've had a few of those conversations. My first one was uh, in 1979 as a student at Spokane Falls Community College. I was going into architecture and we had to take a, an art composition class. And the nature of those classes are you're doing projects together and you, you get to talk with people while you're, while you're working on things. And, and religion came up and God came up and a couple of friends and I who were in that class together, you know, were sharing our understanding of scripture. And there was a lady there, older than us. She wasn't old, but older than us, like 28, 29, but I'm 19 at the time, you know. And... Um, and she had been really fun up until that moment. Um, she had engaged with us and really enjoyed, and, and that turned a switch on for her. And, uh, you know, something was going on inside of her. Something had happened in her life where that really touched a nerve. And she kind of blew up. And it was really things like what I just mentioned to you. That, you know, how could there be a God that would, uh, you know, if, if he's letting these kinds of things happen? Don't think there is one. Here are just a two, uh, two uh, quotes that I want to show you. Other people who have made that same kind of comment, is there a God? And think when you see them, what would I say to this person? How would I engage them? Here's the first one. German novelist, Oliver Marcus Malloy. 
A God that never interferes is indistinguishable from a God that doesn't exist. How would you interact with that one? Surely, you know, somewhere along the line, we would come back and say, Mr. Malloy, we believe God does interfere in our world, interfere in our world. He created it. He's sovereign over it. He controls it and he allows events to meet the purposes of our world. The biggest example is his son, Jesus Christ, leaves his realm and comes into our realm and walks among us so that we might know God and so that we might be forgiven of our sins. Mr. Malloy, we would say God does interfere in his world. Here's another one. Probably heard of this gentleman, Sam Harris. He's a neuroscientist, a philosopher, a New York Times bestseller author, but maybe from his podcast, Making Sense is where you've heard him. Either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist. So God's either impotent, evil, or imaginary. You take your pick and choose wisely. What would you say to Sam? Surely part of the discussion would be something like Mr. Harris. As a Christian, I would add to your list of possibilities as to why God doesn't stop catastrophes. He explained in his word that catastrophes could happen or would happen because of sin. Sin in our lives, sin in other people's lives. A world that has been cursed because of the, or it's the penalty for mankind's sin. And he has sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sins so that if we put our trust in him, we would be forgiven. And upon death in this world, we would enter a heaven that is catastrophe-free. That is going to be sin-free. That'll be pain-free and boredom-free and confusion-free and angry-free for all of, all, all of eternity. And that our God will exist with us in that realm too. Mr. Harris, we would say your list omits what God says is the answer to why catastrophes happen. When a person comes to a poor or a wrong conclusion that there is no God or no personal God that interacts with me, it seems that there then are, are at least two results that are going to flow out of that. One is, we are going to, or a person is then going to come to the conclusion that I'm on my own in this situation. I need to make up my own rules. I need to decide what's right and wrong and then live according to those things. So Ben Shapiro then is right when he says... Without God, there is no right or wrong. Anything goes, life loses value, and with that loss of value comes a loss of societal strength. Or again, William Craig Lane, Christian philosopher and apologist, the point is that there, if there is no God, then objective right and wrong do not exist. And as Dostoyevsky said, all things then are permitted. If there is no God or not an involved God, a person is obligated to decide for themselves how they're going to live, what's right. A second result, believing this to be true, that there is no God or no personal God that interacts with me, I think a person, then they have no God of refuge that they can turn to when the horrors hit. No perceived reason to turn to God when facing trouble or abuse or sorrow or the weight of their own sin. In this person's mind, there's no caring, engaging um, God giving oversight to his, to his world and to his creation. People have to find their own hope somewhere else. 
I'm going to brutalize this guy's name, I know. But, and I, and I even looked online to see if there was some place that phonetically said it. So I could just go, okay, that's how you say it. So I'll just give it a shot. Pengambiki Habyarimana. And if you know how to say that, tell me afterwards. That'd be great. In his book, Pearls of Eternity. An atheist is someone who is disappointed in his search of God. He is a man who strongly needed God, but he couldn't find him. Atheism is a cry of despair. And further in his book, an atheist is a disappointed true believer. He is angry, he is an angry and hungry soul that has failed to find a real God to whom he can anchor his hope. Or American poet Robert Frost, I turned to speak to God about the world's despair, but to make matters worse, I found God wasn't there. If somebody comes to the conclusion there's no God or no personal God that engages with them, not only then are they left to live their own life and figure things out for themselves, but they have no God to turn to then for refuge and help and care. We're looking at the Psalms this summer. Today is Psalm 14. We just read it. It's going to speak to the poor state that many people in our world do find themselves in. Not having a, an understanding or a belief in the true God. And then the consequences that come to, uh, from that. So if you're not already there, make sure you turn to Psalm 114 or, or swipe the screen to Psalm 114. Let's begin again in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We'll stop there. Here's our first stated truth in this passage. A fool believes there's no God. Straight up. A fool believes there's no God. And a fool here, when we're talking about the fool here, we're not talking about, the psalmist isn't talking about, a dim-witted person or an imbecile or uh, you know, anything like that. Rather, the fool is a reference to a person who has no moral character or wisdom. And so the person could be an intellectual genius, but he is still this kind of a fool. What continues to identify and characterize the fool in this psalm is they say, there is no God, and then the way they pound out life as a result of that is that they do, they are corrupt, and they do abominable things, and they do no good. Other places teach this same thing. Isaiah 32, 6. For the, the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error consider the Lord, considering the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Or Psalm 74, 22. Arise, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day long. Now, when we read verse 1, a fool says there is no God, and they uh, are corrupt, and they do abominable things, and they don't do any good, when we hear that, there's surely a thought that goes through our, my, my, our minds. You know what? I know people who say there is no God. And I do consider that foolish, but they're really nice people. They've been good neighbors. They've been good coworkers. They're good friends. I would not describe them as corrupt or doing abominable acts or void of any good. You know, what's up with that? Anybody here know a nice, humble, helpful atheist or, or agnostic? Yeah, a lot of us. 
You, it could be that you came here today and you would say, I put myself in one of those categories. I'm here trying to get answers to say, is there really a God? And if there's a God, does he really care about me? Does he really care about the, the creation that he, that he put into place? And if that's you, you're listening to this description and probably thinking, that, I, I don't consider myself like that. I don't consider myself corrupt and abominable and unable to be good. And in fact, compared to a lot of people, I think I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty good guy. Well, here's the passage, Nick's truth, that must form our understanding of life. Verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. When we read these verses, we need to understand them at two levels. Here's the first level. This is a psalm. It's poetic literature. So when we read poetic literature, we need to expect we're going to hear a lot of um, figures of speech, a lot of exaggeration or hyperbole, a lot of things that are really aimed at. A psalm is aimed at making us feel things. The psalmist, when, or, yeah, in, in poetic literature, the aim is to work on our emotions more than our head. doesn't mean it's going to be illogical. It means it's going to make us feel things. And when we read this, we can feel, as David writes it out, that under the inspiration of, this, of the Holy Scripture, he is sorrowful and has a lot of angst about uh, what's happening around him and the people of Israel at that time, or at least the righteous people of Israel at that time. We don't know what the specific situation is or what the wicked fools have done, but when we hear his words, we understand and we can feel that same kind of feeling. God can't find one person who seeks him or acknowledges him. Not one. Everyone, everyone has walked away from what's right what's right and are being and are corrupt every stinking person and when we read that we get it and we feel it david's obviously contrasting himself from the righteous in israel with some group of people around them that's causing trouble and oppression but we still when we read it we can relate to it and we can feel it let me give you some examples of when you probably had a sadness in your soul and when you thought of our world and went, what in the world is going on? Remember how you felt when you saw the first picture of a Nazi concentration camp? Remember what went on inside of you when you heard JFK had been assassinated? Remember images of flamethrowers in Vietnam? I can still see those images. When Nixon was impeached? When OJ's Bronco was being chased down the freeway? When the towers in New York came crumbling down? When you heard of Bill Clinton's immorality with Monica Lewinsky? When you watched the video that captured George Floyd's death? Or just as wicked, the riots that happened right afterwards? Or today, the scenes of what's happening at the southern border? or over in the Ukraine. I don't think we have much problem 
understanding the kind of feelings that David expressed here. Everyone is corrupt. They do despicable things. No one seeks God. Everyone's turned aside. People are just wretched and messed up. Like David, we don't mean every person is a little Hitler or a Charles Manson or a Harvey Weinstein. But with hyperbole, we're saying people are a mess. That's the first level. There's a second level we need to understand this passage. This passage is is referred to, or passages, truth like it is communicated in other places in Scripture, where it's not hyperbole at all. It means exactly what it says, that all of mankind is in this condition. Let me remind you of a few of those passages. Same type of language when we're thinking of Noah and the flood. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become and for all the people on the earth, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Does he really mean all the people? It really meant all the people. God kind of wiped the slate clean and started all over again. Here's another one, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 18. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that had reached me. And Abraham, as he hears God say this to him, understands what he's going to do is he's going to go wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because of their deep sin. And so Abraham tries to intercede for those two cities. And you remember the story. It almost seems humorous, but it's really not. God, what if when you go down there, you see just 50 people that are righteous? Will you wipe everybody out when there's still 50 people that are okay? God's response is okay, not if there's 50 people. And Abraham comes back, okay, what if there's 45 people? Okay, if there's 45 people, okay, I won't wipe it out. What if there's 40 people, God? If you go down and there's 40 good people there, will you still wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah? Nope. Okay. Don't get mad at me, God. What if there's only 30 people? Okay, if there's 30 people, won't do it. Okay, what if there's 20 people, God? Okay, if there's 20 people, I won't do it. Okay, God, one more time. What if there's just 10? Okay, if there's 10 people, I won't do it. And we know what happened. Sodom and Gomorrah are wiped out. There's not 10 people there. And God knew that. This isn't isn't Abraham somehow changing God's mind. God's just going... Yeah, yeah, Abraham, if there's 50 down there, yeah, I'll, I'll pass over. 45, yeah, 30, sure, 20, sure, 10, sure, because he knows there's not. Because God has looked down upon all mankind and seen that we're corrupt. It's restated almost exactly the same, this psalm in Psalm 53. Other parts are restated in Romans 3, 10 to 13, and I want us to go to there. It should be on the board. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 3. 10 to 13. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, you know that saying that goes, there's two kind of people in the world? This would be a good place to say, there's two kind of people in the world. Because um, Paul's really saying everybody, you know, all the Jews and everybody else, they're under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. These parts are unlike our verse. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, a snake, is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. At a second level, the truth of our corruption is taught throughout the entire Bible. It's ultimately true of us. And does this match our experience in life? Of course it does. No one in all of history has needed proof that there is evil in the world. My son-in-law is a survivor of the Serb-Croatian War of 1992. He's here today, too. If you, he would be glad to probably tell you more stories uh, about that. He was really young at the time. He doesn't need to be convinced there's evil as a young boy while his family was trying to get out of, out of that area. A soldier put a gun to his dad's head and was planning on executing him but found out that his mom, his dad's wife, his mom, was of the same ethnicity as he, the soldier. And so he put his gun down and he let him go. Even as a young boy, my son-in-law knows men are evil. A couple of, couple of months ago, my wife and I got to meet a, 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 he used to be a kid in my discipleship group about 15 years ago, now he's a man, and, and he introduced us to his fiance. And his fiance, was in her mother's womb in 1994 in Rwanda when 800 Rwandans were, were killed in genocide and she and her family escaped. She knows well, she and her family, that men are evil. We're all convinced of the wickedness of man. That's not a hard thing to swallow. But me? You know, I'm lumped into that group that doesn't understand, that does not seek after God, who have turned aside. I'm corrupt. I do no good. Well, let's let that, let's marinate in that for just a minute. Don't, don't raise your hand until I'm done walking through this list, okay? At the very end, raise your hand if any of this is true of you. You've told a lie, big or little. You've cheated on a test or cheated someone. You've said something mean about someone. You drank too much alcohol to the point of being drunk. You've had a lustful thought. You committed a lustful act. Stole something. Disobeyed your parents. Disobeyed the law. Told a dirty joke. Laughed at a dirty joke. Messed with Ouija boards or tarot cards. Been selfishly ambition. Had fits of inappropriate rage. Envied others. Been greedy, wanting more stuff or certain stuff than you needed. Been prideful thought yourself better than others, swore, been unforgiving and unmerciful, a hearer of God's word but not a doer, been a hypocrite, started a fight, verbal or physical. Raise your hand if, that's, if one of those has been, have, are true of you. Okay, look around just for a sec. You knew that was going to be the case, every hand risen. And, and there's an awkward smile that comes on our face at that point. But it's a visual, it, that's not to shame us. That's to say, we're in the same boat in this one. You know, every person in here knows they have been corrupt. Every person in here knows this is true of them. I mean, could we be worse? For sure we could be worse. If I would have put only this list on there, probably nobody would have raised their hands. If you're an axe murderer, or if you've joined a group that's committed genocide on another group, if you've participated in a violent riot, if you've ran an SUV through a parade, if you've planted a bomb in a crowd, if you've tortured someone, if, you've told, if you have sold someone into sex slavery, no hands probably would have went up. We could be worse, to be sure, but that doesn't make us good. 
And that is why, even when we were reading this, you know, together up here, I thought, there's parts of this psalm that are just sobering. But in their soberness, there's this great joy and gratitude for you, for any of us in here who are followers of Christ. Because we, we read this and we think through this and we realize this is true about me. That is what I'm like. You looked down from heaven, God, and you said, Craig, you are rebellious, you're corrupt, and you are not good. That is true about me. But then we know this other truth, too, that says, but I can forgive your sin if you'll put your faith in my son, Jesus Christ, and turn from your rebellious and corrupt ways. And his perfect life and substitutionary death, it will pay the penalty for your sin, Craig. And from the moment that you trust in my son, I'll consider you good. And I'll credit his goodness to you. That's why you'll be considered good. And that, that's the gospel. That's what gets us so excited. That's why we worship. That's why when we sing, we sing with such robust. Because we know that truth. That explanation from God of what we're like is true about me. This explanation of what he's done for me on the cross and, and that he now does not call me a fool, but he calls me good because his son is good and I've trusted in him. That's true about me now. Such great news. Such a reason to rejoice. Now, if you're personally investigating Christianity and specifically what the Bible teaches about God and his world and the people he created, clearly etch these passages that we're looking at into your mind. Clearly etch them in there. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. That's everybody. To see if there are any who understand who seek after him, he finds all of his creation, including you as you currently are without Christ. Just know what scripture teaches and what God says as turned aside, corrupt, and not doing good. And again, internally, you may go, you know, I'm really not that bad of a person. Well, like all of us, you could be worse, but that doesn't equal being good. Being good and righteous will only come from trusting in Christ and have his, his goodness imputed into my life and your life. Okay, so first thing, first truth, a fool believes there's no God. Second thing, God says all men and women are fools. Third thing, a fool believes they won't have to contend with God, verses four to six. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my food as they, or eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Well, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is, the Lord is his refuge. There's this, there's this belief on, on a person's part, the fool called here in the text, that they won't have to contend with God. Even though the condition they're in should be a source of great terror for them, they don't believe they're going to have to contend with God. Again, we don't know the date or the situation of David's psalm, so we can't say if or how God brought terror upon them in their time here on earth, but we do know this. Everyone will have to give an account for every action and thought and word, and the God of the universe, who really does exist and is really personal and engages with us, he is the one that we will give an account to. Nothing will be forgotten. Nothing will be left unscrutinized. Every person does contend with God. And it's going to be Jesus who judges us and judges people on that day. 
Psalm 14 doesn't expound upon this. Let's look at a few verses that do. Acts 10, 39 to 43. And we are witnesses of all that he, Jesus, did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not all the people, or to not all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for that which is done in the body, whether good or evil. Now for us as Christians, again, we no longer have to worry about that judgment. But neither do we have to wring our hands in frustration because evil people seem to go unpunished in their wickedness. Every action, every thought, every motive, the Lord will judge. Final truth out of this passage, verse 7. God is our hope in this messed up world. Listen to the kind of that angst and the, and the lament of David as we read this. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So after saying these things, David just yearns and pours his heart out. God, I can't wait till you make it all right. And he knows it's going to be made right. It just hasn't happened yet. And he yearns for that day. And so do you and I. You know, we yearn for that day when God makes it all right. Two things in closing. If any of us find ourselves in a horrible situation right now, lean into God. He really is here. He's a God who cares. He loves us. He created us. He's sovereign over his world. He engages in our lives. He calls us sons and daughters. He may or may not change our situation right away. He might not remove it this side of heaven. How many in here, if you don't mind, and I'll raise my hand, this would include me, how many of you were born with some kind of a symptom or a disease or a something that you've had to work through your entire life? Had it your entire life? Handful of us. I can't wait for that to be gone. And when I get, you know, as you get older and your body doesn't fight things off so much anymore, things get even worse, I can't wait for that to be gone. It's going to be so good when Jesus comes and makes it all right. And I'm not, a, I'm not a downer person. I really like life. But I can't wait for heaven, you know, when those kinds of things are gone. And if you're in a situation where there's some kind of oppression going on in your life or somebody's decisions are bringing, you know, really hardship into your life, if God doesn't change that this side of heaven, two things will happen on the other side. One, it'll be removed for you, and two, the person that did it will have to stand before God on that one. So for you and I, if we find ourselves in horrible situations, lean into God. He loves us. He'll bring the church around us to help to carry our burdens, and ultimately, if we're his son or daughter, he's promised to remove the curse and the presence of sin forever when he brings us to heaven. And our time on here really, on earth is really a vapor when we think of it in contrast to all of eternity. Here's the second thing. 
A person would be really wise to think this way. I don't want to be a fool or suffer the fool's end. How can I make sure that doesn't happen? Every person needs to do business with God on this one. Knowing that scripture says that God says in his scripture that everyone is evil, including me, including all of us, and that Jesus came and died on the cross in our place if we'll put our trust in him, doing business with him is crucial. And sometimes people aren't sure what to do. So let me tell you, this is how, this is how to do business with God on this area. First, you just talk with him. He hears us. And you don't have to speak in King James or know anything special. You just, just talk with God. He hears us. And then tell him that you believe in him. If you've come to that point, and if you haven't, continue to come here, continue to ask people, get your questions answered, read scripture. And when you come to the point that you believe in him, express that to him. Romans uh, 10, verse 9, if you confess in your heart that Jesus is Lord, no, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You just tell God, I believe in you. Jesus, I believe that you are God. And admit then that what he says about you is true. You are corrupt. You are a sinner. If you have a friend that's been bringing you, maybe you're sitting next to them right now, know this about them. They had to do business like this with God. They came to an understanding and they admitted that they are corrupt and that they hadn't been seeking him and they were not doing the good that they needed to do and they did business with God. Everybody has to do that. You need to do business with God if that's your situation. Bring up the specific sins that come to your mind. Not because he doesn't know them. It's good for us to be sorely aware of how far we are off the mark of God's righteousness and how much we need him. And then finally, ask for his forgiveness for your sin. Make it your intent to follow him in his ways. And he'll remove the label fool from your life. Psalm 14. A fool says there's no God. God says all men and women are fools. It's foolish to believe we won't have to contend with God because of our lives and our actions. And God is our hope. Psalm 14. Either an aha moment or a oh yeah moment or a yeah baby moment. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful to you this morning. Those of us who you've drawn to yourself and we know that you are God and we've, so we have trusted in you and we have acknowledged what you've said about us that we have not been trying to follow you and we, and we had been corrupt. We are so grateful that you removed that label because of what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place. Thank you for being our substitutionary sacrifice and taking the, the punishment that we deserved. And then when you rose from the dead, proving to us you were God and that the penalty was paid for. And that we are no longer called fools in your eyes. Instead, you call us good because you see us through the, the substitutionary death of your son, Jesus. We are so grateful for that. 
Thank you for that kind of love. God, for anyone here that is, uh, that is wrestling with, is thinking through this, hasn't made this decision yet, thank you that you patiently walk with all of us through this. Bring them to a point, Lord, where you convince them and they come to a clear understanding of who you are, of who they are, and how much they need you. We're glad for that and we love you. And thank you again for removing the fool label and replacing it with good. In your son's name we pray, amen.